This is Minnesota Liberty, brought to you by the Libertarian Party of Minnesota, bringing you peace, prosperity, and freedom from the land of 10,000 lakes. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Minnesota Liberty, sponsored by the Libertarian Party of Minnesota. Um, This evening, we are talking with Kevin Bradley, uh, who is a former hospice chaplain. I want to make sure I got that all right. Um, And he is a member of the LPMN, has been active in the party for a long time. And he, I got introduced to him several months ago and immediately got, uh, started to listen to some of his ideas and his positions on death with dignity. So that's what we're going to talk about this evening can be kind of a, you know, depending on which circle you're in a controversial topic, but I wanted to listen to what he had to say and especially get his perspective on that from with his background and as a libertarian himself. So Kevin, how's it going? Thank you for having me. Yeah. So explain to us a little bit about like just the basis of what death with dignity is. Okay. Well, it's most often associated with what they call medical aid in dying, uh, which is the, uh, when a person has the legal right to have a prescription medication that will help end their life. And it's most often, um, some people may know it about it because of Oregon was the first state that made it legal. So that's what usually people are talking about when they talk about death with dignity is medical aid in dying. It's also called the right to die movement. Um, in fact, the longer known term is right to die, but it, it kind of became known as death with dignity because the Oregon law was called the death with dignity act. So that kind of shifted things around as far as the public perception. So how often, you know, as a former chaplain, former hospice chaplain, how often did you have to interact with people that were, um, you know, taking this kind of an approach with their own impending deaths? Uh, Well, none of my patients were allowed to do that because the hospice uh, organizations in general are very much opposed to this. Okay. Um, but I will tell you that I had several patients who would very privately ask me if there's something I could do to hurry along their dying process. And I never knew whether they just thought because I was a chaplain, I have some connection, I could pray or something, or if they really thought I could give them some medication. I, I never really pursued that. But on, on several occasions, the you know, something I learned as both a hospice chaplain and then as a hospital chaplain, and I did that first, is uh, patients will tell chaplains things they won't tell anybody else. Right. And so these patients, like I said, several of them asked me if there's something I could do to hurry along the process. And one of the things that kept coming up in conversations was that they felt that they were just, uh, they had no dignity, no purpose in life, and they were just done. They were just ready to go. What kinds of, um, you know, sicknesses, diseases, injuries, you know, that kind of stuff were they going through where that, you know, I mean, so my, my own, um, my husband's mom uh, died of lung cancer in 2017 and was on hospice. Um, It had metastasized. There was, there was nothing, you know? So I remember, you know, sitting with her through those, long days of, you know, her just sleeping. Um, But what were the kinds of things that, you know, diseases, sicknesses that they were going through um, that were, you know, kind of prolonging the agony? I mean, obviously, death is part of life. And that is going to be the end result. Sure, sure. Um, Well, cancer, of course, is probably one of the main ones nowadays. it used to be that people would die more often of, you know, heart attacks, you know, usually a little bit earlier. Uh, but now people are more dying of uh, heart disease, they're long, longer lasting. And so there's more of uh, suffering involved because it's not quick. Um, one of the things about medical aid and dying laws is that they're very restrictive 
And they really have to be in order to get the laws passed because there is understandably a lot of a lot of uh, concern about it. So in order to get, for example, in order to get it legalized or passed, uh, the Oregon people agreed to very, very strict restrictions. And one of them, the main one, is that a patient must be diagnosed with a terminal terminal illness. And terminal is defined as being within six months of a natural death anyway. So for that reason, uh, the people who are supporters of medical aid and dying can honestly say it's not suicide because these people are not choosing to die. That decision has been made for them. The disease is killing them. They just right. want to have some control over the end of their life. And especially uh, uh, some people are about pain, but pain is actually not usually the, the main thing. It's just a loss of autonomy and personhood. Okay. Um, so I'm. we're going to have another co-host on here pop up. And hi, Joey. How's it going? We were having technical issues earlier, so I asked Joey to come on because sometimes having two of us and, you know, we can sure. talk about, ask questions back and forth. Um, yeah. So uh, we are talking with Kevin about death with dignity. And mm -hmm. so he was just kind of describing like what things are, you know, people are going through um, that would choose this option for them. Now, you said Minnesota, obviously, or maybe not obviously to other people, but I know because I was just reading about this. Minnesota is not one of the states on where you can have this option. What states where so if people somebody in Minnesota was at that point where they were looking for this kind of a, you know, a resolution, where would they would, would they have to actually leave the state and go to a state? And then uh, what would that this kind of look like yes currently yes uh now there actually is a bill in the minnesota legislature that they plan to it may get out of committee for the next session uh but currently if somebody in minnesota wants to take advantage of medical aid and dying they would have to go to one of the nine states where it is legal um i actually have this list here the closest state to us colorado probably as far as just physical location. Now, one of the challenges there though, is that each state has its own requirements. And some okay. states require that you be a resident of the state for a certain length of time. Um, that was uh, one of the problems when I first found out about this uh, back in 2016, there's a fairly famous case, a gal named Maynard, uh, Maynard Brittany, Brittany Maynard, I can never remember. Uh, she was fairly young. She was only 29 years old and she had an inoperable uh, brain tumor and she made the pages of the press. She was actually on the cover of People magazine. She was very personable, very sociable, uh, very camera friendly. And she made the decision to move from California to Oregon because it wasn't legal in California. And then she talked about how difficult that was because then she had to start all over with new doctors she had to uproot, her family went with her, and so everything got uprooted. So depending on where you are. Now, more recently, actually, and this is not so much for Minnesotans, but um, the Minnesota bill is taking advantage of some of the lessons learned from the other states. And very recently in Vermont, which is one of the states where it is legal, um, if you, if you don't know, you can live on a corner of Vermont and literally be across the street from Connecticut. And it's not unusual for somebody in Vermont to literally walk across the street and get all of their health care in Connecticut. So this woman lived in Connecticut. She got all her health care uh, in, in Vermont. And um, she was denied the medical aid in dying because she wasn't a resident. She sued them and she won because they realized that medical aid in dying is considered a medical procedure and it is the only medical procedure that has that residency requirement. So as long as you're allowed to get chemotherapy, you should be able to get medical aid in dying as far as they are concerned. So because of things like that, the other states are now amending their laws and, and uh, originally Oregon, for example, had 15 day waiting period between the verbal and written request uh that is not in the new mexico law um because they just have a newer version uh, because they realize that some patients 
might not even be diagnosed until they have a week left to go. And the 15 yeah. days was thought to be, you know, uh, cruel. So um, that's a long answer to about Minnesotans. But right now you would have to go to Colorado and you might have to move there before, you know, bef you know, long before you really are eligible. So okay. that's, that's one of the challenges. Um, so there's, you know, the argument for it. Um, but the argument against it. So what are, where are some um, situations in, that would make people ineligible, basically, um, for being able to, like, certain, you know, things that they're going through? Sure. That way, sure. I mean, because I don't I would approach this from, I could see how this could also be abused, you know, so how do you avoid the potential for it being used wrongly? Right. Okay, so most of the states are patterned after the Oregon law. Uh, so I'll use that as a model. So the Oregon law, I mentioned there has to be a written and verbal request, and I think two written requests, and originally it was a 15-day waiting period. You have to be diagnosed with a terminal illness uh, by an attending physician, terminal being within six months of a natural death. Um, you have to be uh, pass all the tests to be a sound mind. Uh, so you had to be considered mentally capable. And if there's any question about that by the attending physician, they are required by law to call in a psychiatrist or psychologist to give a, a more extensive test. Uh, so there are those built-in safeguards. Uh, other safeguards really are in the favor of the, the doctors. Uh, no doctor or hospitals are required to participate. To participate. And when I do presentations, one of the concerns is they may have a doctor who's all for it, but the doctor may have admitting privileges to a certain hospital. And he knows that if he participates in a medical aid and dying situation, he will lose those admitting pr privileges. And so sometimes their, their hands are tied. Mm -hmm. um, as far as uh, safeguards, probably the best way I can answer that is that, uh, as part of Oregon's law being, um, you know, going through, it was required that the people behind it study. They take active polls. Uh, why are you doing this? Um, what are the results? And after 20 plus years now, um, there has never been a case of abuse. Um, there was one where there was a questionable ethically, but that was resolved. Uh, no doctors have ever been charged with anything. Um, no family members have ever been charged with coercing uh, a family, uh, their loved one. And that's the other part of the mental capability is that a physician, I believe in most states where it's legal, the physician has to talk to the family members and the physician must be convinced that this person is acting on their own volition. So those, okay. are, th those are the basic safeguards. Um, and the other thing, uh, touching on the, the sound mind, uh, that actually gets to be a bit of a catch-22 because let's say, yeah, you're, you're, you have stage four lung cancer and, you know, you're mm -hmm. likely to be gone in six months. So, okay, you, you, you qualify, you're all fine. But what if you're diagnosed with, say, stage two lung cancer and you've tried chemo and it worked, but now the, chem now the cancer is back and it's growing and it's aggressive and they say, well, okay, you're probably not within six months, but, uh, and it happened with my father who died of lung cancer a long time ago. He, many, many cancer patients, once they go through chemo, they say, I'll never do that again. Right. And so mm -hmm. a lot of people will not go through that again. So they know it's going to aggressively spread now. Well, let's just say that you have, uh, you have cancer, you know it's going to grow, but because it's only stage two, you're likely going to live for maybe a year to year and a half. Well, what if you also have a family medical history of dementia? By the time you get within that last six months, you may no longer be of sound mind. So right. automatically, anybody who is in front of that six-month window, if there's any chance of dementia, you don't qualify. Uh, the same thing happens with a lot of degenerative neuromuscular diseases. You got uh, Parkinson's. MS, muscular dystrophy, Lou Gehrig's disease, all those. Um, 
ALS is one of the few that will actually kill you by itself. But the other ones, by the time you get to the point where you're basically dead anyway, you're no longer capable of speaking. Sometimes you're not capable of thinking straight. And mm -hmm. another big uh, requirement of medical aid in dying is that you must be able to self-administer. And that usually means swallow. Well, if you're uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, you probably will have lost your capability of swallowing long before you're within six months. Uh, so the restrictions are there to prevent abuse, like you're saying, and that's working. Unfortunately, it also means that many, many people will never qualify. So that's the challenge. And it was actually, when I got involved with this, I first got involved with the group called Compassion and Choices. And they're a national organization. They're the big driving force behind uh, lobbying and, and actually helping people write the laws. When I realized how restrictive it is and how many people are left out, and because I was a hospice chaplain, many of my hospice patients wouldn't have qualified for it because they have lost the ability to swallow, um, especially if they've had throat or esophageal cancer. They couldn't swallow anymore. Um, and so many of my hospice patients wouldn't have qualified for it for various reasons. So I thought, well, what do these people do? So then I found this organization called Final Exit Network. And what Final Exit Network does basically is uh, it's also a national organization, but uh, it operates in all 50 states plus Washington, D.C. And people will contact Final Exit Network when they get a diagnosis and they don't know what their options are, so they come to us. Often we will say, well, where do you live? Because if you do live in a state where it's legal, we will often suggest that you see if, they're, if you qualify for that. But if you don't qualify for that, then we go to the next stage. And uh, Final Exit Network uh, will um, provide support to people who would not qualify for medical aid and dying because of the severe restrictions of medical aid and dying. So that's usually where people go, wait a minute, what are you talking about? <laughs> so in, yeah. layman's in layman's terms, depending on how you, how you define it, it's essentially assisted suicide. Okay. However, we are very, very careful to work within the law because assistance is defined differently in every state. Usually it means providing something physical. So let's just say I know that you want to end your suffering and I know what you're going to do and I know when you're going to do it. And because I'm with Final Exit Network, I have offered to sit with you as you do it so that I, you can feel not alone. Um, so you do that. And then when, you, when you're done, I leave. But maybe you didn't want anybody to know that you did that. And so you say, well, will you please take this? Because there's some equipment involved. And so in some states, I'm not allowed to remove the equipment. Other states, I can. Um, so it, like I say, each, each law, each state is different. And so we're very careful to work within it. Now, Minnesota, oddly enough, is the only state where they consider talking to be assistance. It's a goofy, goofy situation, but it's based on this case years ago where this male nurse got on the internet and supposedly talked some teenager overseas into committing suicide. They found him guilty, put him in jail, but the wording around it was speech that enables suicide because he was in Minnesota. He, you know, she was in Europe. So how, how do you draw that line? So um, in Minnesota, what, the way they decided to draw that line was you and I can sit here and talk about it all day long. But if I have a reasonable suspicion that you're actually thinking about it, then me talking to you is considered assisting in a suicide. And so who gets to determine <laughs> where that line is drawn? That is an excellent question. And I was involved in a court situation where the bottom line was, it's prosecutorial discretion, whether or not they want to push that. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's just weird. Minnesota, like I say, Minnesota is the only state that has that little goofy law. So, 
Um, in fact, technically, and I remember the judge actually asking the, the, the DA this or whoever it was, that if if because uh, it's the book that we base our our guidance on is available in any bookstore it's called final exit it's in libraries so if mm -hmm. i go into a library and i say hey i want this book called final exit can you show me where it is and they do that's fine but if i say hey i'm thinking about committing suicide can you show me where this book is at that point the librarian becomes complicit in an assisted suicide if she shows me the book <laughs> it's really strange so, so it's a, I don't know, like, you know, when you leave that, it depends, it's going to depend on who's willing to prosecute and how far that they're willing to take it. Yes. It's, um, obviously, there's a lot of gray areas in these kinds of situations. It, right. Ultimately, except for the, you know, the final outcome of death, there's no gray area in that. Correct. So, right. right. Um, I did have a question regarding, you know, I'm assuming for the most part, this is a conversation about uh, adults that can make these choices. Oh, Are yes, there yes. any states in, um, in, the, in our country where that might apply to children also? Not that I'm aware of, no. Okay. No, it, it's a very clear de delineation. Uh, you must be an adult of sound mind. And even with Final Exit Network, you do need to be diagnosed with an actual physical illness you can't just come to us and say, you know, you broke up with your girlfriend. You want to end it all. We don't participate in those kinds of things. You actually, you have to have a diagnosable, documented physical illness that would qualify you to be terminally ill, but it may not be within the next six months. Um, or it would qualify you as most likely you will lose all of your autonomy in your bodily functions. So we take all these things into consideration, and there's actually a medical evaluation committee, uh, which consists of uh, multiple licensed uh, practitioners of various disciplines who all verify the medical records before we can decide whether or not to take somebody on as a client. Okay. Um, so, Joey, do you have any... I don't want to leave you out in case you're, I know you're probably thinking of something. Yeah, no, I've, uh, I've been thinking about the fact that when I have heard about this topic, the majority of the time it has been in relation to Canada and the way it's government and uh, provincial governments handle uh, assisted suicide or medical aid in dying. And I, I just want to point out to our audience catastrophism you've heard about uh, medical aid and dying with regards to Canadians and particularly teenage Canadians. This isn't Canada and our healthcare system works in a drastically different fashion than theirs does. That's true. Joey, I'm actually very glad you brought that up because most of the people who I'm involved with in Final Exit Network would like nothing more than for us to have the same healthcare system as Canada. And as a libertarian, my whole view on this is I don't think the government or any church should be able to dictate how and when you die. It should be completely up to you. Now, you know, I, I've mentioned uh, to other people, you know, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. But if you want to do it, have at it. But then you're responsible for the consequences of that. So that's one of the reasons I'm totally opposed to universal health care. Well, in Canada, one of the problems now is that they have universal health care. Therefore, somebody's taxes may be paying for somebody else's assisted suicide when they're when they're really it just totally disagrees with them. That anyway, so that's I'm glad you brought up the Canadian situation because I argue with my colleagues on Final Exit Network says no, 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 no. The worst thing for us would be if we adopted universal health care because then I could not support it. Because, you know, mm -hmm. as a libertarian, I don't want taxes to be used for something I don't agree with. Yeah, because it removes consent from the equation. Because yes. here, here in this country, the, the way in which that sort of thing is paid for is either not involving taxes or involving it in a much more obscure way. But if we switch to the Canadian healthcare model, taxes would be directly involved in ev nearly every medical practice, if not every medical practice. Exactly, exactly. So, I, I mean, I... That's one of the reasons I don't want universal health care, because then it also means universal death care. <laughs> and that's that's not the road I want to go down. 
Well, would that also, like if the government were to regulate that nationwide, um, maybe, I mean, because a lot of what I've seen too is a lot of criticism from Canada in that it's, um, I think, I, and I, don't quote me on this, I'm just memory remembering, reading something about, you know, like um, offering that to kids and there, you know, like you said, teenagers, but then there was a younger or a wider age gap or something like that, that, um, you know, governed by a uh, people who may not have the best interest of the people in mind, or may just be eugenists, or, you know, where, so like, how do you, because, you know, talking about this, ultimately, that's, that comes up in conversation, (laughs) You know, yes, the, uh, yes. the association. And, and, and it's not so much in Canada right now as it is in Europe, where uh, assisted suicide has been going on for, for a while, uh, particularly in Switzerland. And there have been, I don't know how many, but there have been uh, minors who have, uh, um, who have gone under that. And if you read the details, every one of them is typically a long-term cancer patient. And the child has actually said, I don't want to go through that again. And I actually have a personal connection with that because part of my training as a chaplain was I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota at the time, and I was working uh, as part of my training at Sanford Hospital, and I was working in the pediatrics unit. And one of my very first patients was a 16-year-old young man who was there because he had had stomach cancer the prior year and it went into remission and now it was back. And I was brought in on an ethics consult because he didn't want further treatment. But because he was only 16, he could be overridden by his grandmother who was legal guardian. And so it got to be a long involved thing. So anyway, yes, the, the children, and oddly enough in that particular case, he actually was a Native American and uh, he had already gone through the traditional rite of passage uh, to, to have adult decisions made. So if his grandmother had not brought him into the hospital, but instead had sought treatment on the reservation, his decision would have been honored. The fact that he brought them into the, the, the white man's hospital, suddenly that decision was taken away from him. Um, ultimately, the grandmother relented and uh, he did die within a few months because he just he refused to to take uh, treatment and anyway um i i don't know for a fact that all of the minors who have uh, undergone medical aid and dying in europe but i do know i've read several cases because uh, I, I just i do get exposed to that um and so far i have not seen any evidence that any of them are coerced into it um and we could have conversations. One of the big opposing forces of, of medical aid and dying, both Compassion Choices and Final Exit Network, uh, which you know has fewer restrictions, the, the two loudest voices against are the conservative churches, so mm-hmm. Catholics and evangelicals, but also the right to life movement. Specifically, there's a group called Not Dead Yet. And it's a, it's a coalition of people who may have teenagers who are disabled. And they are afraid, very afraid, that this law will somehow, somehow lead into some doctor deciding that their child doesn't deserve to die. And that's why the medical aid and dying laws and Final Exit Network's own policies, it always requires consent from the individual and there needs to be documented evidence that that person is not being coerced now we could always talk hypotheticals about you know what if a 12 year old is in a coma well i don't know (laughs) um i just know that as a libertarian and as a hospice chaplain i don't want the government making that decision yeah, so. I've seen those, like those, you know, groups you mentioned um, and having opposition to it. But, you know, based on that, that they, like I said, I, I brought up eugenics um, is where they don't want it used as a tool 
to try and control, um, you know, kids who others might deem, um, you know, unworthy or incapable or something. And I think right. kind of in some ways that might go back still to like um, just, you know, World War Two, and, uh, you know, because those stories still are circulate, you know, the way that Hitler approached um, handicap and that kind of stuff. And I don't know, maybe it originates some there, but. Um, uh, well, know- you actually bring up an interesting point because one of the uh, opposition points is the often referred to as the slippery slope. Yeah. And something I actually learned when I was uh, in graduate school uh, seminary is, and this is from an ethics professor is that this term slippery slope actually has no basis in fact. Because if you look at it deeply enough, it's all about looking at the intentions. Well, if anybody goes back and looks at Hitler, you find out very quickly that he always wanted to take over all of Europe. He wanted to take over the world. It wasn't Mm -hmm. a matter of, okay, we'll give him Poland and he'll be happy. Uh, No, that was never his intention. The challenge is finding out what their true intentions are. And now the other side of this, since we're a little bit of, you know, the politics, you know, libertarians versus the others, is that if you look through history, most of the time when there was a slippery slope argument that had any merit, it was always somebody with the more liberal view that wanted more. Anytime there was an argument brought up by a conservative and somebody said, well, you're going down a slippery slope, there is no evidence that anything proposed by a political conservative that they wanted anything more than what they asked for right there. And it's actually in, in their in their name, conservative. The, they don't want to push the envelope in that way. It's usually on the liberal side of things where they want to keep pushing. So bottom line is the slippery slope applies to liberals, but it doesn't really apply to conservatives in, in history anyway. If you recognize, first of all, if you recognize that fascism is just a form of socialism and liberal communism and the state authoritarianism. Right. So, so you know, I, so I was a former medic, uh, honestly, you know, when, when I talked to you about this the first time, um, there's, you know, a part of being, you know, a medic and being anything that's medical, you know, do no harm. And which in some ways that, uh, goes against, you know, you're supposed to try and heal and protect and treat and take care of people. Um, but ultimately, my my time as a medic also taught me that sometimes you can do everything right and it doesn't matter. Like, you know, you can go by the book in treatment and all those kinds of things. And um, death is just simply out of our hands. Right, um, right. So this is kind of for me, and and still there's part of me that's like resistant to it, you know. But sure, um, you know, if you're in that situation though, and you know that your life is at its end, you know, it changes the perspective also. So right, and I w- I guess I would challenge you a little bit uh, in your in your uh, background as a medic. Let's just say that you knew that if if your colleague could just hold on for a couple hours longer or or whatever, that maybe there would be treatment available Um, or in some cases, and I'm sure you're aware of situations like this where somebody, yes, they may live, but their quality of life is going to be nothing. Now, if you have a choice as a medic to either treat them or not treat them, and they ask you not to, what do you do? Yeah. You well, know, I mean, in the medical, you know, you also have the the orders that do not resuscitate orders. And this, right. so there are certain things that you are obligated to follow um, that are made in advance for those, some of those situations, but. Right, right. So now you talked about uh, like the Hippocratic Oath and whatnot. And, and as a chaplain, you know, with that religious training, one of the things that I often challenge the medical professionals is, well, when you say uh, do no harm, why are you only limiting it to the physical? Mm-hmm. What about their spiritual needs? What if they are ready? What if they want to go? Why, why is the medical profession so insistent on prolonging 
physical life. And in fact, uh, one of the things I'm toying with here is I wrote a series of articles and I realized I probably had the beginnings of a book. I often challenge my own colleagues as chaplains, if they have any kind of a Christian background, I say, if you believe that there's something better after this life, why are you not celebrating a death? Didn't you just yeah. win the lottery? You know, why, why, uh, why are Christians afraid of death? You know, why don't they, why don't they welcome it? Uh, anyway, it's just an ongoing conversation. I personally think that one of the reasons why Christians uh, fear death is because uh, they bought into the story about they're afraid they're not going to be saved. And there's always that fear. And so they think that they have to always, you know, just hang on, hang on, hang on, just make sure. So anyway, that's one of my theories is that one of the reasons that Christians fear death is because they're not entirely sure that they're going to be, you know, going to whatever they think heaven is. So when you, as a hospice chaplain, how often, like, you know, when you, people who were, you know, dealing with their impending death, how often did they fear it versus accept it? Where where were um, people generally on that line? I never met a hospice patient who wasn't ready. Okay. Contrarily, mo most of my patients were their families. They weren't ready to let go. Mm -hmm. uh, usually by the time a person is in hospice, they've already been through treatments maybe. Um, it's not new to them. Uh, but by the time they actually are in hospice and I'm visiting them as a hospice patient, they're ready. There's no question. Now, every once in a while, because uh, I was part of the team that would go on and bring people on to hospice. Um, and so they may still be uh, in shock because they've just been diagnosed with late stage cancer and they didn't know about it before for whatever reason. And so they're just they're they're dealing with that shock. And so they may not be ready, but they quickly become ready. Uh, they just, like I say, I, I never met a hospice patient who wasn't ready. So it actually surprised me. I, I fully expected them to, and they weren't, and they are, they're always ready to go. In yeah, fact, they I often remember... ask, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. You keep going. I was just going to say uh, on multiple occasions, I would have, my conversations with the patients were them asking me, how do I convince my loved ones to let me go? Mm -hmm. um, and that was especially difficult when the loved one was the parent of a child uh, okay. or sometimes an adult child. Um, in fact, probably two years ago, maybe, um, I, I'm called in on final exit network cases, even if I'm not personally involved with them, because I'm kind of the uh, spiritual advisor for the whole organization. And I had a conversation with uh, uh, a client, I think, if I recall correctly, he was a young, younger man in maybe his 40s. And um, he ended up what we call self-delivering, just because people don't like the other words. So he, he did die on his on his own. And I talked with him before that. Six months later, I was talking with his mother, and the mother called me to thank me. Um, and that's one of the greatest gifts I've ever had, was the mother of an adult child who thanked me for, uh, you know, just my counsel. And one of the things I'm always very careful to say is, I'm not going to try to convince you to do this. This I'm just here to support you and, and help you explore your own your own challenges and your own acceptance and, and, and where you are with it. Do you think that there's some freedom in that being a chaplain versus like a doctor who, um, you know, just the mindset is different. Um, yes. Well, yes, absolutely. Yes. But what I'm thinking of is there's always an exception and the exceptions are typically the old family doctor who knows the family very well. And they have a long-standing mm -hmm. relationship, and so they will regard them as a friend as well as a patient. Uh, in fact, one thing that happens very often in hospice care is that um, the patient will ask the doctor to give them more more pain medication. 
Well, the doctor knows very well that they're not feeling any pain. And so it's kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Oh, I see. You're asking me to give you enough to put you out of your misery. And because I know you and I, and my kids grew up with your kids, I will honor that. And so they actually give them a lethal dose of medicine. And in the hospice industry, they came up with a special term for it, and it's called double effect. Yes, judge, I gave him enough medication to stop his heart, but my primary motivation was to mitigate his pain. And therefore, they say, as long as your primary motivation wasn't to kill them, you're good. And that happens every day in hospice and even in hospitals. You know, they, they give them enough medication that will most likely result in respiratory failure. But they're giving it because the patient says, I'm in pain. And that kind of a circumstance where, like, the doctor is residing in a state that, you know, doesn't have right um, uh, death with dignity laws. Is there legal protection for them if they find themselves in that situation? Um, in the states that do have death with dignity laws, uh, there is legal protection. Um, and now states that don't have it, that's why I say it's if they're in hospice care, um, then they, they do that double effect thing. Now, on, on the states where it is legal, the, the protections there are that that's why the patient has to take themselves. You, the doctor can't, you know, give it to you because that's physical assistance. Um, the doctor, like I, said, I think I mentioned earlier, a doctor is not required to, to participate. But the other thing is that when, if they do go through with it and the patient dies, the cause of death that's on the death certificate is not the medication. They are legally allowed to list as the cause of death, whatever the underlying disease is that would have killed them anyway. So I think that's that's a universal thing is that they're never gonna be charged with, with something like that in those states where it's legal. It's kind of a, (laughs) (laughs) this is a a heavy topic. (laughs) Yes, 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 it is. And I I always come back to the libertarian perspective of it's your life and it's your death. And what right do I have to tell you anything about your living or, or your death? Now, I'm never going to try to talk you into it, uh, most likely we'll try to talk you out of it and, but I'll help you explore, you know, where are you with this? Why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think back, I happened to be working at Mercy hospital in Coon Rapids when Robin Williams uh, killed himself. And I remember some talking head on Fox was just berating Robin Williams, calling him a coward. And we've all heard that, you know, suicide is often called the coward's way out and that kind of thing. And so uh, somebody, I think it was on a Facebook page or something, was commenting about the fact that this uh, Fox News host was calling Robin Williams a coward. And at that time, we actually didn't know that he had been diagnosed with, um, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but some kind of dementia, I guess. But uh, we knew that Robin Williams had been suffering from depression for quite a while already. Mm-hmm. And this particular person challenged everybody and he said, if you can imagine the will to live and how incredibly strong that is, everybody wants to live. I mean, I'm sure, Rebecca, in military situations, you've probably seen things that you know, people are, it's amazing what people will overcome in order to live. You know, it's oh, yeah. the most powerful, probably the most powerful force in the universe. Okay, well, now imagine something stronger like depression. And now imagine living with it for 10 years before Robin Williams killed himself. So this particular person said, instead of calling Robin Williams a coward, I choose to mark him as very courageous for dealing with it for 10 years. And that just kind of turned my head around. It's like, that's a very different perspective. You know, acknowledge the struggle that these people have. And and, uh, so even when it comes to mental health, who am I to judge whether the pain inside someone's brain is no, is any less than 
the pain of cancer in their in their you know lungs or anything. So right. you know we're nowhere near yeah we're nowhere near in a society ready to condone suicide strictly because you have depression. Uh, but it just gives me a different avenue to recognize that you know for people who say you know I I just can't I can't deal with it anymore. Um, they haven't slept in months. They can't stop the voices in their head. I just refuse to judge those people because I I don't live in their head. Right. Uh, Robin Williams had Lewy body dementia. That's what that it was. was yeah. Yeah. That's what yeah. he had been diagnosed with. Um, so, and I, you know, I'm obviously I'm part of the veteran community. Uh, we have a very high suicide rate. I mean, it kind of depends on which, um, you know, which source you're reading is whether it's 22 a day or 40. I've heard, I've heard, reports up to 40, 45 suicides a day. Um, and I mean, and having been personally affected by that through fellow veterans that we knew that were not able to overcome the things that uh, we went through and having actually, you know, fought that battle myself to some degree, it is, I mean, it really, I think one of the things that people need to recognize about suicide um, in relation to depression is that it only, really, it only takes once to not be able to overcome what you're feeling for you mm -hmm. to lose the battle to suicide. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter, you know, and so we have this like perception in society where, um, you know, like I said, it's the, it's, you know, a coward's way out when, but, what about the last 15 years of fighting those battles every day and overcoming it when right. it only takes once of not being able to for you to lose the battle completely. And there's right. no recovery from that. You, there's just, you can't come back from it because there's nothing you can do after death. It's fine. Right. Right. And that's always one of the, one of the arguments. Uh, but what you're touching on tangentially is, uh, rational versus irrational suicide. And mm -hmm. for, for many years, there was an open conversation about rational suicide. Uh, back to Socrates' day, he took hemlock. It was a, it was a well-thought-out plan, um, especially in military circles. Uh, you, we've all seen movies, and you've probably experienced it personally, where somebody gets mortally wounded, they're leaving an area, they're surrounded by the enemy, and their best buddy makes sure that they have one round in their pistol left over. And the understanding is that he's not going to allow himself to be captured. In other words, right. he's going to commit suicide in order to avoid something worse. Well, we consider that a noble thing to do. I'm just saying we should apply that same level of nobility to anybody. As long as they think it through, and it is a very rational process, then I just think it shouldn't it, it it shouldn't be our decision and it shouldn't be the government's decision. It shouldn't be a church's decision. Now, one thing that I want to bring up is that um, when I started with Final Exit Network and I joined their Speakers Bureau, at that time, the assumption was that we had to convince people. But we very quickly learned that anytime you start talking about this and people start thinking it through, and they think back to, I wish this would have been an option when my grandma died or when my brother died or when my mother died. Invariably, uh, people would simply say, I wish I had known about you before. So the Speaker's Bureau has completely shifted. We're no longer in the persuasion business. Right now, we're just trying to get the word out that we exist. And so when people ask me, well, what can we do to help? I just say, Tell your friends and neighbors, go to finalexitnetwork.org and request a speaker. We'll be happy to come out and talk to anybody about what we do. And we always say we are never going to encourage this. Uh, but what we want to do is make sure that you feel supported. And it, it, touching on to the mental health, mental health aspects, often what happens, because we're not giving people any information that they don't already have access to, but they have often lost temporarily lost the capacity just to think because they've just been given a diagnosis uh, and they just they can't think straight yet 
I mean, you can go on the internet and find, you know, all kinds of ways to end your life. Uh, but, you know, nobody thinks about it. Well, now suddenly you're faced with how do I do this and how can I do it peacefully, painlessly, without leaving a mess, having the support of my family and all these things. And that's what Final Exit Network does is help you to explore your options and basically just kind of bring you back to reality and say, okay, we recognize you're on total emotion. That part of your brain is preventing you from having rational thought. So we're here to get you back on track and let you right. think about it. So think about it and let us know if you want to proceed. And then, you know, then we go to the next stage if they really want to do that. But they really, it really has to be very convincingly. And there's, there is no gray area in this. It has to be a very rational thought out process. They have to have a bona fide documented physical illness that either will end their life or will severely debilitate them. And so those are the only people that we allow ourselves to, uh, to, to work with. So, you know, in the libertarian party or libertarian in general, you have, you have the, the NAP, NAP, uh, non-aggression principle. And I'm, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this would um, not, this would, could coexist with that um, because the motive is not to hurt them. The motive is to help them. Um, yes, and right. there's no, you know, no co coercion there. Nobody's profiting off of, you know, what somebody chooses to do at the end of their life. Um, so that, um, you know, where maybe like I said, you know, somebody with a medical background may have a hard time coming to terms with that. Right. Because uh, they're, the, they're focused, they're focused on the physical. Yep. So um, my family actually just got home. So I'm going to <laughs> wrap this up before it gets really crazy in the background. But totally I want to understood. tell you, yeah, thank you for, um, you know, coming on and talking to us about this. And I really appreciate it. Um, you know, this is, like I said, it's a very heavy topic and it's a lot to think about, especially if nobody's ever thought about it before. So right. I just wanted uh, to I, I appreciate the opportunity. And, and again, if anybody out there, wants more information, just go to finallegacynetwork.org, request a speaker. You can use my name if you want to talk to me personally, but there's other speakers too. We'll be happy to talk about it. To me, it always comes down to it's your life, it's your death, it should be your choice. And um, if you are interested in joining the party and you've been watching the podcast, it's lpmn.org and you can find the link and join the party. But thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you.